Hello, friends. In this very special episode of Class Unity Transmissions, we bring you the last interview ever recorded with Danny Fatante. Danny was a well-known labor organizer in Texas with over 30 years of experience. He worked at Bethlehem Steel for four years and spent a decade working in a variety of other industrial jobs. He later became a professional organizer for the Communications Workers of America, becoming a member of the union's national staff in 1986. Moving to Texas, he became an important leader of the DSA chapter in his new hometown of Austin, growing the chapter from a state of more or less total dormancy to over 700 members by 2017. Sadly, young DSA members will likely remember Danny not for his lifelong commitment to labor organizing, but for a Twitter scandal that destroyed his relationship with the DSA and left his reputation in tatters. At the 2017 DSA National Convention in Chicago, Danny was successfully elected to the National Political Committee of the DSA. It was his second time to run for the NPC. A well-known figure in labor circles, Fatanti's record was widely documented in online spaces. However, as the convention drew to a close, a vocal group of anti-police online leftists began to claim that Fatante's campaign statement was a fraud. What Fatante had been concealing, his detractors claimed, was his role as an organizer with the Combined Law Enforcement Associations of Texas, or CLEAT, which is a police and corrections officer union and an affiliate body of Danny's longtime employer, the CWA. Now, it was true that Fatante had not mentioned this fact in his campaign materials, but it was widely available information, and many of the Austin chapter members who were active on the floor in support of him during the convention were well aware of his resume. Such facts poured cold water on the idea that Fatante was somehow hiding his true identity. Nevertheless, outrage swirled on Twitter with many saying they would never have voted for him had they known he was involved in police union work. Eventually, on August 10th, after days of delay, the DSA's interim steering committee issued a statement suggesting in no uncertain terms that they were taking a dim view on the matter. We believe that Fatante's omission was uncomradely and out of line with the principles of our organization, they said. In subsequent days and weeks, the controversy continued and a debate ensued about the extent to which DSA should be trying to find solidarity with police union organizers and whether members should make a practice of discriminating against individuals for their career backgrounds. The convention closed on August 6th. Three weeks later, on August 27th, the NPC, absent Danny, voted 8.5 to 7.5 to seat him because they could not find any basis to remove him from malfeasance. Danny responded, charging that seeing he was a duly elected member of the NPC, a nonprofit board, the exclusionary actions of the NPC in the intervening period were illegal and unethical. He refused to take his seat. In just a moment, we'll present our interview with Danny, where he goes into detail on these allegations, as well as detailing the behind-the-scenes involvement of DSA National Director Maria Savart. Before we hear from Danny, however, it might be useful to take a moment to reflect on the legacy and significance of the Fatante controversy for the contemporary left in America. Black Lives Matter demonstrations have played an effective role in raising public consciousness, However, as Cedric Johnson noted in a 2019 lecture at the Art Center College of Design, 
To achieve real change, social movements need real power. And this kind of power cannot be achieved solely through social media debates and dramatic performances at the barricades. Such tactics need to be accompanied by honest, patient and sustained conversation among activists, victims' families and reformist elements within police unions and departments. It is within these spaces, suggests Johnson, that internal dissent can be emboldened and the ranks of those willing to break what he calls the blue coat of silence can grow. None of this is to suggest unequivocal support for entrenched police unions. It is clear that some police officers are unfit to work with the public and especially in minority and working class communities. Yet officers are neither monolithic nor devoid of internal contradictions. And as you'll hear in this interview, Danny Fatante had an instinct for navigating these complexities in a way that the contemporary left would do well to study. Danny passed away on October 23rd, 2022 in Austin, Texas. This interview was recorded on October 9th, just two weeks before he died. It was his last media appearance. We want to thank his wife, Barbara, and the rest of his family for their support in making this interview possible. First of all, Danny Fatante, welcome to the show. It's a it's a pleasure to to meet you. Um, I wondered today if we could start perhaps just with your childhood and where you were born and where you grew up. And and I suppose the question really is, did, did you come from a political family, would you say? Um yes. Uh I I was born in uh Manhattan and grew up in Queens, both Richmond Hill and Forest Hills. And uh, it was the Catholic section of Forest Hills that I lived in. Um, and my grandmother was a, a hardcore socialist. Her husband, my grandfather, had been a leader of the Socialist Party in Western Pennsylvania. My other grandfather was the head of the hotel and restaurant workers, one of their three big locals. So there was a lot of discussions about the union stuff. And my dad's family was right-wing trade unionists. My mom's, my mom's family was left-wing trade unionist. You ended up uh, later at Bethlehem Steel and I think there for four years or so. Can you can you get me from Manhattan to? Well, you know, I grew up in Queens. Uh huh. I was born in a hospital in Manhattan, but I grew up in Queens, New York. Um, and when I got out of high school, um, uh, I did a number of jobs. My first job that I had was um, uh, I w was already working there as a high school student and was in Brentano's and there was a union drive the Teamsters had and I got fired during the drive uh, but we won the drive and um, 
uh, I eventually moved to Buffalo. It was a combination. I had some friends up there that had moved up after high school. Um, There's a lot of good union jobs. And um, I had friends there. Plus, there was a bunch of radicals I knew that had done some stuff in Buffalo. So I moved up there. And my first home in Buffalo was at a, in a squatter's uh, building that my friend who was very good, he fixed up the electricity and the plumbing and yeah. everything worked. Nice. And then I finally got an apartment and I met Barbara, my wife. We got into high school with one of the guys I had worked with. Uh, he worked at Bethlehem Steel as well. And uh, go ahead. No, I was going to ask about the steel company. Did you did you go straight into the steel company, or were, was were there other jobs before that in Buffalo? Uh, there were some other jobs. I applied right away. Um, and working for Bethlehem Steel, you worked and you got laid off and you worked and you got laid off. Um, they hired new people basically to fill in for folks when they took got vacations. There was a there was one good aspect of the steelworkers contract. Every it was every five years you got 13 weeks vacation. So that's a quarter of the year. Um so I went through my uh, training in um, the Coke ovens. And out of 100 guys, there was six of us who were left at the end of the three months. Wow. And, and uh, during that period, when I was laid off, I had pick up other jobs. So I worked. There was another Coke company there, Donner Hanner. And there was uh, a foundry, Pratt and Letchworth. We made tanks, tank axles. Hmm. And there was a rubber company that I didn't last that long in at all. Um, and so I bounced from jobs and unemployment during that four years. What was it like? Uh as an organizer at that stage or, or did you sort of see yourself as an organizer in that period of your life? I did see myself as an organizer to some extent. Uh, the This was still before the end of the Vietnam War and there was a group of students that formed a group called the Attica Brigade in upstate New York. And I went around to different cities building chapters of the Attica Brigade for them. And then I uh, talked to people at work a lot about politics. Um, I tried not to be too controversial, but 
I wasn't that good at it being non-controversial. <laughs> yeah. uh, I had a guy who was running the Jesse Jackson campaign, their labor uh, effort, who was traveling throughout the South when I was in Austin, Texas. And he got to Austin and he, they, he asked who in the labor movement should he try to connect with. And he was told to go connect with me. And he came and he started talking to me. And I said, yeah, no, I'll support Jesse Jackson and I'll come. There was He was going to speak at uh, a big labor meeting. And I said, sure, I'll be glad to do that. And we were talking and he said, there's something about you that seems familiar. And I said, well, what's that? He says, I just think I've met you before. <laughs> so he says, did you always live in Texas? I said, no, I used to live up north. He said, oh, I lived up north. So he, then he said, <laughs> Where did you live? And I said, Buffalo. He said, well, I lived in Buffalo. And then he said, um, where, where in Buffalo did you work? I said, at Bethlehem Steel. He said, I worked at Bethlehem Steel. And uh, he said, you worked at Bethlehem Steel? Where, what department? Because there's 14,000 men working there. It's, it was a big place. I said, the Coke ovens. <laughs> he said, I worked the Coke ovens. And he started laughing. He says, I know who you are. You're Danny the Red. Everybody used to call you that behind your back. <laughs> uh, and I said, oh, I didn't know that. He says, yeah, you're always talking politics and stuff. But then that's what people labeled you as. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so uh, uh, it's not that I changed every anything. I was still learning a whole lot about yeah. that yeah. yeah yeah i learned and part of this was afterwards that bethlehem steel was sued because the coke ovens uh before night they were sued in 72 for 1972 only blacks and other minorities were hired in the coke ovens because it was too dangerous a job so in buffalo there was blacks there was native americans and there was Arabs. Uh, they have a large Yemeni community up there. So, um, and the union with the NAACP in a lawsuit out of Buffalo, out of uh, Birmingham at the time, sued that they had to um, hire whites in that department and allow minorities to transfer into other departments uh, because the Coke ovens killed you. Yeah, and they they didn't want to put whites in there. So, but I learned that after I was gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, do you end up moving from Buffalo uh, straight to Texas, or or uh, talk to me about that part? No, of your life. Um, I I was laid off, and what was happening was all of the the other plants in the seventies in yeah. Buffalo were laying people off. This was the late 70s or? Uh, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, it was like, it was not very good. The mid to late 70s, not everything was laid off, but enough that was laid off was people were going to find job from job and you'd go to a job and you'd work and then you get laid off. Uh, so we knew some people in Philly and we went down to Philadelphia and they had a coke oven there, and I worked there for a very short time. 
it was the worst Coke ovens I'd ever seen. It was just, there was hardly any uh, restrictions of the gas levels that you were breathing. And uh, I, I, the, my, the job I held for the most time was a job driving a truck because uh, I'd work in a trucking company when I was younger yeah um in New York City and uh then we weren't getting by that well and we had a we had a kid um and so we moved up to New York City and I got a job driving a cab for a while while I applied for better jobs and I got a job uh, working at Ford Motor Company. Um, we made the Pintos. It was an assembly plant in New Jersey. So I was doing that for a while, but I hated it. I literally <laughs> hated that job. Um, you had 37 seconds for each side of the car. Wow. This was the Henry and Ford uh, assembly line of, in the late 70s as we move into post-Fordism, right? Yeah. Yeah, it was it was horrible. Yeah. So I was going to quit. Then I went down to talk to the Navy. I was going to join the Navy. And uh, I came home, told Barbara, I applied for na the Navy. And uh, she said, well, when you go out to the ocean, when you come back, me and Mickey will not be here. Wow. And I, I said, oh, what do you mean? She says, we're not going to sit around waiting for you to come back from sailing around the oceans yeah so she said what why don't you do something that you're interested in i said well what are you talking about she said well you're very interested in labor you know a ton about it um there's a labor school uh at rutgers and um i applied for that and i kept doing the job with um at Ford for a while and then I moved over to I worked for UPS at night for a little while right and I started I started going to the labor school in Rutgers and at the school in Rutgers I hadn't do, done a lot of reading for the last 10 years. I used to read all the time when I was younger, before I started traveling around and working. Right. And so all of the books they gave me on labor, I read from the very beginning to the end, the required books, the supplemental books, and then supplemental readings if you wanted to. Mm. And so the teachers really liked me. Um. And so after the first term, the AFL-CIO sent out a thing. They were having a problem with organizers in the South, um, which were mainly old guys who a lot of them were not really into organizing. It was their last position. And so the Industrial Union Department, the AFL-CIO, decided to recruit young workers who had 10 years in the plants. and. Uh, close to two years well they want they wanted two years worth of college and i had close to that okay. um so uh i applied and they hired me in march so i started in september at rutgers i ended up in in march and then the 
professors who really liked me and recommended me developed courses for me to take while I was working for the AFL-CIO. That's amazing. So by the mid 80s, I had a degree in labor studies. Fantastic. Um, and you were working for the AFL-CIO. Yeah, the Industrial Union Department, the AFL-CIO, and I was mainly organizing steel workers. So my first campaign was Mesker Steel in New Albany, Mississippi. And then I organized Blaw Knox in Jackson, Mississippi. And I went on to organize, because um, in the Industrial Union Department, you worked for the unions that you had been a previous membership in, but not exclusively. And then I worked for Universal Electric in a town called Kosciuszko, Mississippi. And then I uh, plant in, uh, in Memphis was having trouble with their truck drivers who were trying to desert because uh, they were upset that they were getting Martin Luther King Day off. So I went up and uh, met with all of them individually. There was 13 of them. And we won that campaign. Um, and then I worked on three campaigns that the industrial union department had with the furniture workers. Uh, one in Tennessee, uh, in Cleveland, Tennessee. And we did not win that one. And then I did two in uh, Florence, South Carolina, and we won both of them. So the steel workers came to me before that and said, they were opening up an office in Philadelphia, Mississippi. And would I come work for them? Uh, it would be a staff position with the steel workers. And I said, yeah. And they had another guy who had worked with me on some of the campaigns they were gonna hire as well. And so both of us were set to move to um, Philadelphia, Mississippi. And the regional director said I, he didn't totally understand because he heard I was from New York City. Mm. Um, but uh, both blacks and whites and these plants seemed to get along with me well. And I said, well, you know, I just went out and talked to him about the union and stuff. And in some of these plants, there was real division between the blacks and the whites. And so nobody considered me black. For obvious reasons but nobody <laughs> considered me white for because i wasn't like any of the whites around there so i was like sort of an objective <laughs> anomaly uh person yeah and uh and so this was 79 or so they had to tell me that they were doing massive layoffs of steelworker staff and they couldn't hire us so i was going to quit and move back up north and just get a job um, in one of the places where I had met people. I was seriously considering the uh, Philadelphia bus drivers. Uh, and uh, I knew a bunch of guys there. And um, I went to a, you, on a bunch of these assignments, you were on the road two weeks and then you got home for a day and a half right. to see your family. Well, my son was walking around in supermarkets 
asking men were they were they his daddy because uh, he hadn't seen me for so long. So I was ready to quit, and I had I was at a dinner with about five or six organizers who were on the road at this the same way as I was. Then mm-hmm. we were having a dinner in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I said I was going to quit, and I really enjoyed organizing, but. I wanted to have a family as well. And so they, uh, nothing happened there. And then a couple of weeks later, the assistant organizing director for the communication workers called me up and asked if I would be willing to come work for them. And I said, well, it depends. You're going to ship me all over the place. Uh, so while I was doing these other campaigns, they shipped me to a, a job in upstate New York. Uh, and it was crazy. My family was in Tennessee at the time, and I was in upstate New York handling a problem. And I said, I don't want to be shipped all over the place. They said, oh, no, we have an assignment in East Texas. You could just work there. And I said, well, what happens if you decide to send me to other places? They said, well, we'll make a pledge. We won't send you to any place uh, while you're assigned there. And I thought about it and I said, well, okay. And they said, well, go in an interview with a guy named Eliseo Medina, Hmm. was the organizing coordinator for the state workers campaign in Texas. And I went there and I met with him and he says, well, how are you going to get along working in East Texas? I said, I'll just walk around till I can find all the subway stops and I'll do fine. And he stopped for a moment and realized I was kidding. And then he says, well, what they say is that you can get along with people in the rural South. So we'll try you out. Yeah. I went out there and yeah. um, worked in Nagadoches <laughs> and Tyler and Rusk and Lufkin. I lived in Tyler and Crockett. Um, he came out with me and said they had a little bit of a base in both Lufkin and Rusk. But there was four other institutions in East Texas that if they were going to be a serious force uh, in that area, they had to organize. And that was Crockett State School. That was for uh, juvenile offenders and Stephen of Austin University and UT Tyler Health Science Center, which was a hospital, used to be a, a disease that was mainly in the chest I forget it. But anyway, that was the black hospital for that. And then mm-hmm. the, the white hospital was down in um, uh, Kerrville. And the San Antonio one was the Mexican-American hospital. They used to segregate you when, you know, with certain diseases, they segregated you. And then uh, Stephen F. Austin and then UT Tyler, which was... Um, a regular educational stuff. So I said, okay. And I worked in East Texas for about three years, mm-hmm. building an organization in those locations. It, was that too long an answer? Not at all. I, it was riveting um, and very useful. Uh, I wanted to ask you now, as your time in Texas, I mean, did you did you continue to live in Texas? I know because eventually you... Yes. Yeah. So, so are I, you... Are you comfortable talking about, uh, you know, getting involved with, because uh, I think 
later in your career, you got involved in with, with CLEAT, right? The the combined law enforcement yes. associations. And <laughs> I saw a quote from, I was, you know, doing some background reading to to talk to you. And I saw a quote from Charlie Wilkerson. Yes. And he, um, you know, I just think it's ironic given, you know, where, as, as you and I both know that, you know, where this story is going to end up going, um, you know, with, with so many people who sort of, I think, ended up, you know, in, in this kind of very negative way, seeing you as like a cop or whatever. Um, it, I thought it was very interesting to see that that cleat themselves uh, saw you as a kind of a, a left wing troublemaker. Uh, yes. You know, so so I just wonder, could you help me unpack that a little bit? You know, how how do you end up working for cleat and what was your time there like? And how did well, you how did you find working with them? Yeah, I was. I was organizing the state workers and then got promoted to their coordinatorship. Mm -hmm. so this is with the CWA, I guess, at this stage, right? CWA, the state yeah. workers union. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we built up a large group of that. And then we started organizing wireless workers. Uh huh. And we were pretty successful at organizing. Uh, they kept changing the name. It was Southwestern Bell Wireless, singular, and then the, uh, Southwestern Bell bought AT&T, and so then it was AT&T Wireless. But we organized 40,000 wireless workers, and uh, one of the other people, and I got a number of promotions within CWA, so I became an area director over organizing for five states. And uh, uh, I came into my office one day and my pictures were taken down. And I said, what happened to him? And the secretary said they were told by this guy, Albert Bowles, to take my pictures off the wall. Wow. So I went in and I said, what are you taking my pictures down for? Mm. He says, well, we're not we don't put pictures of communists on the wall. I said, what? What are you talking about? It was a picture of Martin Luther King shaking hands with Malcolm X. He didn't know who what Malcolm X was. <laughs> he just knew Martin Luther King was a communist. I said, well, first of all, that's not your call in deciding who's what. <coughs> but um, don't take them down. So I put them back up. He yeah. took them down. I put them back up. He took them down. I finally went in and I said, you ever touch any of my stuff again, I'm going to take down all your signs. And it was driving him crazy because I was the same rank as him. <laughs> uh, I had gotten promoted to his rank, even though he was, uh, I guess he was 50 years older than me. Um, and uh, he really did not like my politics. So Cleet came to the AFL-CIO. Um, they had been very successful. They were the largest police union in Texas and one of the biggest in the country. And they went to the AFL-CIO asking if they could come in and affiliate, become part of uh, uh, CWA. Yeah. So a bunch of the higher ups in CWA had a discussion, and this one guy, Albert, said that he would give the assignment of doing the affiliation agreement to me because uh, he knew I was left wing. Yeah. And that Cleet was right wing. Yeah. 
and that I would, he, he didn't say this to everybody. He thought I would fuck it up. <laughs> so he was looking for some way to fuck up my uh, work and my history. And to give you some background, uh, the head of Cleet had run for um, Texas state senator. And I had built a whole campaign against him saying he was a fascist and he was a right winger and nobody should vote for him in the Democratic primary. Wow. And I helped organize his defeat. So he specifically didn't like me. Very good. I go over to a meeting at their headquarters. And he just yelled at me for the first half hour. And I just accepted him yelling at me. And when he ran out of breath a little bit, I said, can we start dealing with the issues that we confront? They wanted to affiliate, but they didn't want all the provisions of a regular local because they had, when they had started out, they were part of SEIU and they broke away from SEIU, but SEIU captured all their money and stuff so they right. said if they were going to build themselves up they didn't want cwa to be able to grab it and so we went around the, the block on a bunch of different things and they didn't want the local to be put into receivership where we could remove some of their leaders and we we would meet and every time we met he they would yell at me for a half hour and then we would negotiate over uh, one of the, the points that was contentious. And we finally came to an agreement. Oh, they found that I didn't like sushi uh, <laughs> or sushi. Sushi. You know, sushi. Yeah. The, and yeah. so they would say, okay, let's go to lunch. I said, okay. And we'd <laughs> go to a sushi restaurant every time after they figured out that I didn't like it. Oh, my God. Uh, and there was all sorts of games, but in the whole process, I, I, um, they, they started to like me and respect me because I did the job. Yeah. And I didn't ask to take this assignment, but I knocked it out and they came into CWA. Yeah. And their CWA was going through um, the telephone industry used to be totally governed by the federal government through the federal government overseeing the regulations on the telephone industry. Well, the telephone industry was broken up and a lot of the regulation was transferred to the states. So in Texas, we had um, all of the telephone regulation coming up. So Cleet had about 12 or 13,000 members, Texas State Employees Union um, grew to about uh, 15,000, 10 to 15,000 members. And then the telephone workers had about 30,000, but we had we were by far the most sizable union in the state and we were able to put pressure on different types of candidates so in texas you can stand for all the right things 
Um, but Cleet had the ability to fight to turn around Republicans to get them to vote for some measures. So we were able to pass legislation that <clears throat> Southwestern Bell liked that um, uh, CWA liked with the help of Cleet. And I got assigned to be liaison between Cleet and the rest of the union. And so there were different things. So TSEU had a resolution that uh, they had child protective service workers. And when they went into a home where there was, say the father had been sexually abusing a kid, um, the potential for violence was very high where they would get whatever. And the state employees union local had a bill that they wanted uh, if the social worker deemed it a situation where violence would go, that they could uh, ask for a policeman to come in. The police force preferred going in and preventing violence than just going in afterwards when it was it already exploded. So TSU asked Cleet for its support. We got Cleet support. And with that, a bill who had, that had been tied up forever moved out of the committees in both the Senate and the House. Um, and Cleet delivered that for TSU. And so there was all sorts of little things that started happening between Cleet and the rest of labor. There was a strike that CWA had in Beaumont, Texas on Helena Labs. And uh, I got a call uh, from uh, my district vice president that said, well, there's all sorts of trouble down there and the police are knocking the shit out of our members. So I said, well, let me look into it. And I went over to Cleet's headquarters and I explained what we knew. And so he got the president of the Cleet local in Beaumont on the phone. And the guy says, oh, I know all about the strike. I got all of our best union members to refuse to do strike duty. So we said, well, what that ended up doing was all of the worst yeah. police <laughs> yeah. took it, those jobs. Yeah. And I think one of the things when people stick labels on folks, they don't understand that among the police, there's varying degrees. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so the guy says, okay, well, let me do something about it. So he got all of the pro the pro union policemen to sign up for strike duty. And the next day when they showed up at the picket line, they pulled out these big coolers full of water, ice water and ice sodas. Wow. And the workers, they didn't, they said, this is the same police. What what the hell happened? They called up. And we explained to the union leadership what had happened. And they were so happy. The uh, police started giving tickets to the scabs that drove through the picket line <laughs> for uh, reckless driving and uh, attempts at assault and battery abuse and the things. And then they found out who the leaders were and they followed um, the leader of the scabs home until they made a violation. And uh, then in that strike, 
the uh, workers got a thing said that we support Helena Labs. It was a, a yard sign and they started getting them put up all over the city. So the mayor told the police force they were supposed to remove these signs from people's yards, uh, which is illegal. Mm. And uh, so the police chief called up, said what was going on. So there was some discussion. So it was decided that they would tell all their officers they never could find a sign to take down. So the signs just continued to grow all over. And there was a lot of public support. And the public knew that the establishment, the powers to be, wanted uh, this strike crushed. And every time they tried to pull something against the workers, it backfired on them. Interesting. Um, and then we were able to do things for Cleet. So they were in a hard negotiations with the El Paso City Council. And they were stuck. They couldn't move it. And I was able to talk to two unions that were planning their state or their area conventions in El Paso. And both of them called up the city and said, unless you settle the, the contract negotiations with Cleet, we will not be bringing our conventions to your town. Interesting. And conventions are big money items for the Chamber of Commerce and for the cities. So there was little things that happened and relationships were built. Um And in particular, myself started, I got to know different officers as human beings. Right. Um, They all knew I, when I went to, when they finally recruited me to hire me, I said, I don't think you need, you want me. I've been arrested 11 times. I'm a socialist. They said, oh no, we know everything about you. We have your whole background. Right. (laughs) I said, well, I don't understand why you want me. They said, well, we just want you when I retired to just come in and do training. Very interesting. And the the new executive director there said that Cleet was heading for some problems with their healthcare and their pensions because they were totally alienated from the black community, the Mexican American community or Latino community and the LGBT community. So they said, the executive director said they had to change that. And one of the things that was in my assignments was to look for opportunities to change those relationships. Um, And he put me in situations. So originally I agreed to work 10 hours a week for a year and I ended up working 60 hours a week for five years. And I ended up liking people and- yeah. Yeah. Oh, as you do, I'm sure. Yeah. So, so talk to me about um, getting involved in DSA, and and uh, I I don't know how long you were in DSA before you wanted to run for the NPC at the 2017 Chicago Convention. But but was DSA in your life for a long time before then, or or or, or was it something you came uh, into more pretty more recently? much? One of my close friends, a guy named Travis Donahoe, who had been in DSA. Um, I don't know, from the time he was 18 or 19, when he worked as a library worker for AFSME in Fort Worth, and then he came down and helped build the University Employees Union that we affiliated into the State Employees Union. And he came to work, and he became the legislative director, 
and he was the editor of our newspaper. And he was always talking to me about DSA, but DSA was a small group between 10 and 15 people in Austin. And uh, we ended up, I think we ended up with, after he came on, we hired two more DSA people who all were very good, um, worked very hard. But one of the things, without saying all the alphabets, I hired people from a half a dozen left-wing groups. Um, and I sort of I, I sort of knew, but I sort of acted like I didn't know what people's background was. Right, right. And right. and so they were all. I mean, one of the things is organizing is hard. Yeah. But the people who were who had some sort of left-wing background, a lot of them were not members of the different organizations they'd been part of in the 60s, were pretty hardcore dedicated and had a bunch of skills. I mean, they knew how to build the demonstration. They knew how to talk to people that they didn't know. They knew how to bring people together. Um, and so... Uh, DSA was one of, I'm not sure whether it was the biggest. I never was quite sure on which were the the different members uh, were in, the, in these different organizations. But there was, an, as well as being on staff, there was a number of members that were in different, that had been in different political groups, especially during the 60s. And gradually over the years, I figured out more and more, but initially I didn't know that. And so that, that there was a couple of attempts at other political organizations working within TSU to try to uh, get their influence to become right. dominant. Right, right. And DSA always lined up 100% with me. And so towards, I've been retired uh i don't know a year or two and travis asked me if i'd come to a meeting we ended up having it at my house with five other ex left uh people from the 60s uh who were all retired and he said there's something wrong you guys are all very political you support all the right things, but you're not part of an organization. And you belong in DSA. If you're not going to be in DSA, join one of the other major political organizations. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but we've got all these problems to solve. And you're still helpful in building the state employees union, building other things. And I told Travis, I said, well, I'm in cleat. Uh I'm in Cleet to the extent that I was on staff in Cleet. And he said, well, that doesn't matter. And, you know, you should be a part of it. So I read a bunch about the history of police and socialists. And there was a famous strike in the middle of Canada, one of the, the biggest cities in Canada that had a general strike and they tried to get the 
police to break up the strike lines and they refused and they brought the army in and so then the police all went over and joined the strike lines and there was a couple of other things there was a boss in boston the police had led this a strike and it, in cicero the executive director in cleat had worked up in the chicago wisconsin area and he was the head of the police group in cicero where they went on strike and they tried to break it and all the wives and children went in and sat in on the headquarters of the police department and organized other police departments not to come in and pull them out and so they were able to eventually win that strike so i got exposed to i think there are serious problems um between the police and a bunch of the communities especially the minority communities um but it's not monolithic what was interesting was working at clay everybody knew i was a socialist there was two guys yeah. the republican president and the republican political director would try to arrange to have lunch with me once a week just so that they could get my views on things. And there was people who were constantly asking me my views. And I would share them. Um, I didn't move anybody dramatically, but uh, they also, I, within the organization, I built a sense that the same reason that police need a union, other people, whether it be food service workers or child protective service workers yeah. or telephone industry workers needed a union. Right, right. right. And um, the same things that tried to divide up a workforce along racial lines and uh, sexual orientation lines was true among the regular workforce and the police. And so slowly we built understandings of that. And I think I might have told you, but in Corpus Christi, it was a big shootout with a drug gang. And this one guy ran into the shootout, saved a bunch of guys' lives, but got shot all the hell. This was it among the, uh, the county sheriffs. And when he was in the hospital, he almost died three or four times. So when he finally uh, started to recoup, he said, I no longer want to live as a man. And he got an operation and became a woman. And then another officer became it. And my executive director asked for me to go down and talk to people about the issue. Um, now, there was other people who were sympathetic but weren't sure what to say or whatever. So in the, to that extent, I provided a service to be able to talk it through. And in Fort Worth, we had a situation where practically all the officers were white in the Town County Sheriff's Association. Mm -hmm. And I went up there and this one guy came in and says, who the fuck has that Obama <laughs> uh, bumper sticker on their yeah. car? And so everybody looked at me. Oh, said, no. oh, oh, that's crazy, Danny. And, That's crazy, Danny. Uh, <laughs> right. And so they 
so uh, he started talking about how fucked up Obama was. So this guy in the meeting who was black got upset. <laughs> you know, I voted for Obama. And he said, well, that makes sense. You're black. And then a Mexican guy got up and said he voted for Obama. And the guy said, well, why the hell did you do that? You're not black. He said, I thought he was a good man. And then the president, not the president, the vice president of the local got up and said, he, and he was white. He said he voted for him. It wow. was almost a, a brawl. <laughs> wow. In the meeting. Uh, when Obama ran, practically all of the chapters south of San Antonio endorsed Obama. And there was all sorts of back and forth where <coughs> people thought it was a legitimate thing to support Democrats. I wanted to, to move forward now to 2017 and your decision to run uh, for the NPC at the 2017 Chicago Convention. Um, I know from many of the statements that your critics uh, put out at the time that one of the arguments uh, uh, was that you had somehow acted in a in a misleading or disingenuous way because, in their words, you know your your campaign literature simply said that you were a, an organizer of state workers. It didn't. In other words, it didn't mention Cleet, right? And I know that you've responded to this numerous times over the years, but just for people who uh, may not be familiar with the story or who are only coming to this now or who may be younger, um, can you can you give me your version of how you approached that election? And can you give me your perspective specifically on the question of whether or not you thought it was fair that you were accused of having hidden uh, your involvement with Cleet at the time? Because I, I, you had run before, right? And you, your campaign yes. literature had mentioned that. So so take it away from there. What would be well, your... Well, I, I think that, that there was two things. I was working for Cleet when I joined DSA. And I was wide open with Cleet about it. And I came to my first DSA meeting and everybody introduced themselves and said something about themselves. And I said, I work for Cleet. Some of the people didn't know what it was. I explained it. And I said, if people have problems with it, I can respect that. And and then uh, probably within four or five months, um, they picked co-chairs. And um, people wanted me to be a co-chair of the local. And I, again, told everybody I was uh, working for Cleet and this could be controversial. And they said, no, nobody cares. If you look at the literature I gave out at the convention before, I put down that I worked for Cleet. And anybody who want, had questions about it could just come and talk to me. And it was the biggest non-issue I ever saw. Nobody cared. Um, I put on my, in on the big election, I put 50 people who had known me in different parts of my career. 
who knew I was left-wing, even further left-wing than DSA when I was younger. And then in DSA, and I said on the literature, if you want to understand me a little bit, call, call or just ask them because some of them were in their own towns. So Steve Early knew everything about my background and he was from the Bay Area. The, uh, there's a guy named Bob Masters who was a, a national leader of DSA. Um, I had problems with uh, Marie, can't think of her name, because uh, she kept on coming in and saying we were doing things in the wrong way. Um, and I said, well, what you're saying does not make a whole lot of sense, Marie. Uh, she said, well, you have to put an emphasis on going over and working on the east side in the black community if you're going to have African-Americans joining your local. And I said, well, I don't think that's necessarily true. And in fact, we have very good relations with the Austin Justice Coalition, which was an, mainly an African-American group who the leader of that had talked to me about that they had a real problem in Austin with all sorts of young whites coming in and dominating the organization. And they were building it to develop younger and more inexperienced African-Americans. And they would appreciate if we discouraged people from going over and joining. And I said, that's not a problem. I, I, I said that if you need us, like you want to have a big demonstration, just let me know and we'll get our people to turn out. <laughs> so we had a very good relations with uh, that organization. When the thing exploded, I went over and met with the head of uh, Black Lives Matter in Austin, and they had the same attitude about me. Um, so I, I initially, I wasn't initially the reason why I ran the first time is Tom Grace in Buffalo, who I had helped talk into starting a chapter there. And Travis, who had moved on to Tennessee, wanted me to join, uh, run for the board. They said, there's all sorts of things that are screwed up and you are strong enough to go through some of the the problems. Um, and I said, I really don't want to be on the national thing. I don't understand that I wanted Travis to run. And he said, no. He said, there's serious problems there. So just a small group of them had decided, uh, even though the Constitution said, if you have so many members, you have so many delegates, they decided to cut their delegate number in half for that convention. So that only they're the people that were totally reliable to their leadership would be delegates. And, and this it was is the, the we're talking about the, just, just so I'm clear in case I'm confused when we're talking about they cut their uh, delegation in half. Is this the Austin DSA or no 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 this was in New York City. Oh sorry, pardon. New York City. I think it was the Brooklyn whatever. They have certain names to them. And I put an appeal of that issue at the national convention and got very little re answer on it. And there was a number of people within DSA who thought that these kind of games, there were people who were interested in winning and not understand. And I raised this thing in the appeal. I said, look, you might win this issue, but you're setting up a situation where people play all sorts of games 
to maintain or seize partial control. And I said, in the long run, if DSA is going to be the group that hundreds of thousands of people join and becomes a real force in American politics, you can't be a group that's playing these little uh, games. And so uh, not only what I was well, if it, I don't know whether you've seen the literature that I put out, but I had all of these people who know me and they were from all over the country. They were from Minneapolis and they were from Denver and they were from Oregon. I picked up all of the votes in Oregon because uh, a woman who used to work for me became the organizing director of the state employees local there. Right. And uh, so I even picked up uh, people who endorsed me from New York City who knew me. And so all they had to do was ask, what about Danny's? background and they would have found out that I've been a radical since the time I was 14. Yeah. And um I've been arrested and I put on my literature I've been arrested a bunch. Um and in my first piece of literature it was very small with just the endorsers and then people said I should write some more things and I I added some of that because it was a bunch of people who were enthusiastic about me running. Um so the, suddenly I was attacked for not including stuff that was totally well known. Yeah. Yeah. In Austin. They had to dig to find brand new people who had just joined Austin. Um uh a lot of the smaller meetings happened in my home. Yeah. And I have I have uh plaques that were given to me by the EMS group that I helped organize. Right. And the county sheriffs on my wall. Right. It's not, I mean, this is. I was extremely well known. Yeah. And so I thought, this is ridiculous. What do you mean I'm yeah. hiding this? And no, then people it's... said, oh, it was, I found out on a plane going home. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, this was not a top secret op operation. Yeah. So uh, one is I didn't necessarily want to do it right away. There was parts of my program that were totally ignored. I thought there had to be an allowance for uh, each group um, really making decisions for themselves and that we shouldn't have a top-down uh, leadership, which is what we were having under Marie's of Art, where she was trying to exert her uh, leadership. So one of the things I went around with her, I said, you know, you're telling me we're not going to be able to recruit minorities. And we had in our chapter like 25% minorities. And this is in a town of, of Austin where there's only 9% African-Americans. And she says, well, that doesn't make any sense. How do you have that? I say, because we're recruiting out of the labor movement, where, which should also be our base. And a lot of the minorities like socialism in Austin. And so we elected delegates to the to the convention, and the majority of our delegates were non-white. Now the different factions had all sorts of people who were who um, became alternates. And we said that's fine, and then so anytime somebody went up to go to the bathroom, 
they started voting in their place, but it was, um, if you didn't cherry pick to find somebody who didn't know my background, people in Austin knew my background, but even more than that, people all over the country. So I don't know, it's yeah. a little bit lazy yeah. that the, the people who acted, one of the things I didn't put my background on a little Twitter thing. Right, right, right. I mean, because I'm from a previous generation. Yeah. So I told, I told people and they knew who I was and they said, yeah, no, we know who you are, Dan. But also like, it's, an, it's a, you know, for someone with your experience, decades and decades of organizing experience, right. how do you shrink that down to one t Twitter it, bio? It, it's, you know, it's very, very hard. Yeah. Somebody yeah. Uh, found out that I had written a thing on Nagadochus and it was in the Midwest Labor Research Review. And it was published like in 1990. And they said, you know, this guy, Danny Fatani, we think he's the same guy. He wrote a thing in Midwest Labor Research Review. Yeah. And people says, what? <laughs> you know, I mean, they could understand if I wrote a thing for law enforcement officers yeah. who want to be uh, right wing. Um, they just can't deal with the nuances, Danny, I think. Can, can you describe okay. to me how you ended up bowing out of, of that election? Because uh, you, you were elected, and then I believe you- Was you, elected. You, you voluntarily stepped down. Right, the national leadership asked for me to step down. I said, no. I said, if you want me gone, vote me out. Yeah. And I said, there's so much bullshit in the way you're trying to do this thing. And I was just beginning to find out towards the very end that Marie Zavard had her staff encouraging locals to come out against me. Um, and I and I really objected to that on the basis that I ran on a platform of local autonomy and that the national union should should not act like they understood everything that was going on all over the country and try to impose their will. So um, they finally voted it down. And then I got a hold of some emails and one of the ladies who I had met a number of times in Ithaca, New York, who's on the board, she sent out a thing to a whole lot of people and that I they forwarded it to me, was that while Danny was voted to stay on the board, he's going to be totally isolated and we're going to make sure he can get nothing done. And it was sort of like, well, if you voted for me to stay, what the hell is that about? And then Marie Zavard continued to try to find a small number of discontents in the local chapter. And the local chapter had been a source of friends and camaraderie. And, you know, we had really built it up to over 700 and it was still growing when the thing exploded. And they turned a chapter into a zoo. Um, the guy, uh, so a bunch of people came over to my house and said, why don't you do the question and answers at the beginning of the meeting? 
and you can answer all the questions. I said, well, I'm not sure there's business. And they said, oh, no, this is the way to do it. So I go in and I follow their direction. And then they lead the attack on me. It was like, what the hell? And uh, one of the guys says, you lie. Because I said the board, um, uh, I was the only independent that was elected who had never served on the board. And there was one other person who was independent, not in the two big factions, um, who had served three or four times before. This is in the national board. On the national board. Right. And um, so I was answering questions that were raised from the floor. And then I was attacked later for directly answering the questions that were asked after Marie Zavard had orchestrated. That's what she wanted to go on here. Um, and one of the national leaders quit over her maneuvers. Um, so it, what I realized was this was going to, instead of having a chapter that worked on social issues, um, they had set up a group that was in touch with Marie Zavart in rewriting our bylaws. So we used to have a two-page bylaws. Uh, which was based on a labor union's bylaws, which was based on two principles. One is everybody gets a right to speak on a subject. And two, the majority will determines what decisions are made. So instead of this, they were introducing a, uh, a relatively long, I thought it was long at the time. It was maybe only about nine or 10 pages long. Now the local chapter has a, a bylaws that's over 37 pages. I mean, it's ridiculous. Every The bylaws are used as a weapon to suppress involvement and suppress any kind of open discussion. And I saw that, that what was going on was this was going to be a long-term fight within their chapter, within the Austin chapter. And it was not going to be a pretty thing. So I just said, fuck it. So I quit the Austin chapter. I quit DSA for about a year. And then I just started paying dues again. Uh, so one is the, the there are people that I signed up all over the state. There are people in Fort Worth that know my entire left-wing background. I mean, it was ri ridiculous. I knew that I had worked for Cleet. Uh, there were people who would ask me for help on different things. So one guy's daughter went off with a drug gang in Houston and they couldn't find her. And we were able to get the police to Put a special emphasis about getting her back and now she has a very good life and whatever but there were, there were people all over the place called me up uh during the obama administration the uh portland oregon police were furious at the obama campaign so uh, a friend of mine is working in the obama campaign called me up and says can you find out what this is about 
So I call him up and I talk to him. And I said, well, you had a rally in Portland. They said, yes. And you set it up a certain way. And it kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And you kept moving it over. And you moved part of the rally on top of the police memorial. So with people standing on it and was seen as a big insult. And... So the Obama campaign said that wasn't our intent. I said, okay, let me get a number and somebody from the campaign can talk to the leaders of the Portland police. And we set that up and eventually that uh, uh, Obama didn't ask for his agents to do it. He dealt with it directly himself. He met with the leaders. And that was something that people who knew my background just called me up and says, can you help solve that problem? And I did. So I think that some of them view sort of like cowboys and Indians, that the Indians are always shooting at the cowboys and the cowboys are always shooting at the Indians. And I guess they view the cops as the trooper, the soldiers shooting and killing indigenous people. And there's some basis for that. But some of it is exaggerated and blown out of proportion. And there are many law enforcement officers who really want to have good relations between uh, the police and people. I know one of the um, sort of themes that that sort of jumps out when you read, um, you know, even today, some of the statements that are still online from the 2017, 2018 period that, that, that discuss your presence, your brief presence on the NPC. You know, a, a lot of them um, echo the sentiment that, you know, like older people, you know, people like yourself uh, on the left are simply kind of out of touch with the violent realities of state capitalist violence today uh, against minorities, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I wonder, you know, that's always, that always strikes me as a strange uh, argument because, I mean, if, if we know our history, I think people in your generation were subjugated by much more, you know, racial minorities, you name it, you know, we're, we're, we're subjected to much more uh, violence from the state uh, than today's generation. I mean, political violence was way more intense and orchestrated against the left uh, in your lifetime than in mine, for example, I'm 47. But, um, you know, so so how do you kind of respond to this idea that, you know, younger people seem today to sort of just like think that you're out of touch? And and yet, you know, I, I, I think the, the, well, the, the question... Well, sorry, one, go of ahead. The, one of the things... <clears throat> is I think that people think that it's instances of violence are much more prevalent on the internet because of cell phones and the way people communicate than in the past. So that, that younger people's perception of this is that in their generation, there's all of this violence. All of that violence happened years ago as well. Right. And for some reason, they don't recognize it. And there was like serious um, 
repression yeah. on the left and there was serious repression on um, the minority communities right. years ago without all of the <clears throat> cameras and the internet going. So with me, they had in New York City, when I was, I used to go demonstrate at least once a month during the uh, 60s. We would go out and during the day, the riot police were the special event squad. That was their unit. And in the evening and nighttime, it was the tactical police force. So if you were a regular demonstrator, the police started to know who the hell you were. Um, so uh, one of my arrests was at Columbia University, and this one guy from the tactical police force had me. I think he actually asked for me out of the line um, because he had had me at the Whitehall Street demonstrations, which was anti-draft demonstrations. Um, and he talked to me a lot, and I talked to him. So uh, about two months later, there was a thing called the Diamond Ball, which was at the Plaza Hotel, which was all of these very wealthy people from South Africa would come and meet with their financiers in New York and have a big ball. And so SDS in the in the universities and this uh, high school network of kids that we had did a ton of organizing to turn people out. And we were going to uh, rush all of the streets around it where they had, did I ever tell you this? No, I don't think so. Oh, okay. Well, there was, there was gonna be police lines. And so there was a lot of systematic thinking it through. In order to get through it, you need some people that would jump on the tactical police force to knock them down. And then the other people would run over you. Uh, it's anyway. So they asked for volunteers in each group. And obviously I volunteered, <laughs> um, even though I'm an old reactionary. Uh, <laughs> so we're running up and you have to really psych yourself up to run and jump on a tactical police force. They're all <laughs> gr gritting their teeth, ready to beat the hell out of us. And we come running up a street with hundreds of kids behind us. And I'm just about ready to jump on a cop. And it was Sullivan, the guy who arrested me at, at the two previous demonstrations. And I said, oh, hi, Sullivan. How are you doing? And he says, hi, Danny. And <laughs> everybody broke out into laughter. All of the cops that were holding their things like this couldn't hold it that tense they started laughing and the demonstrators it destroyed <coughs> the ability <coughs> to break through the lines now most of the other lines they did not get through either a few people got through and then the, they had backup police units that grabbed them you know but um i talked to people you know you know and one of the things is is I saw police as human beings even then. My mom's boss, this guy Algernon Black, she was his secretary, wrote about that incident in his book. He was the chairman of the um, Civilian Review Board in New York. 
which I campaigned for and worked for. I forgot about that. That was one of the things I did. I, I actively worked for the Civilian Review Board uh, coming into existence. Um, but I do think that the generations have a different perspective, but it, it's based on a very superficial understanding of what media has done and the role of the media 40 years ago. It just wasn't somebody take a picture and then you do a flyer and you use glue to glue down the picture and then you would print it out on a mimeograph machine. It wasn't the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, so see, I think you're referring to social media and it's the distorting effect. That, yes. That, yeah, 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 yeah. 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 That, that it's, it's like two different perspectives. On yeah. It. Yeah. That actually leads me to uh, social media at all. That 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 sort of leads me to another question, which is sort of like a part two of the, the question I just asked you a minute ago. But you know, I know that uh you know, young people today in the left, uh in my local chapter and in other chapters that I've observed and been part of over the over the years since I joined DSA in about 2016. Um you know, one of one of the 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 things that I see is this sort of energy around um, demands such as prison abolition or police defunding, um, and I just want I kind of wanted to ask you, you know, like looking back at this controversy from your perspective today, you know, um, do, do those demands that young socialists have today seem hubristic to you? Do they do they seem uh, maybe you know What's serious mean? Uh, like maybe maybe like unrealistic you know because i mean i i think um if we look at national polling today you know voters american voters don't seem to be buying what abolitionists are selling so right. i'm just curious like what's your take looking back on this whole experience now i mean you know it seems like well, you i think were... that there's a problem in how this is worded and in DSA, there's all sorts of micro Trotskyite groups that are constantly changing the wording to make it more and more extreme. So when the, the, the actual resolution at the convention on this, it was that we had to, that the present criminal justice system was not working, was not fair and had to be abolished and reworked. Now, in the discussions and the internet beeps and burps or whatever, they leave off the fact that there is some need. In socialist Sweden, they have prisons. In Finland, right? Most progressive in police Finland, system on earth. They have yeah. it. In Norway, they have it. There is prisons. But yeah. anybody who, and I think most law enforcement officers think the prison system is bullshit. Yeah. When I was working with the prisons, practically all, not all, but the vast majority of the officers thought that marijuana should be legal, that most of the other drug enforcement was horrible because it didn't stop the drugs from coming in. And all it did was constantly stick a number of Black and Latino youth in prisons, piling them up so they could learn better criminal skills. 
and that it was bullshit. So I supported the the resolution and people said we just passed this resolution and Danny was opposed to it. No, if they've been pay attention, if people pay attention to details and care about actually truth, I supported that resolution. And one of the reasons why I thought I could be valuable on the national board was working with people to try to uh, one reach out to other forces besides the hardcore left. I thought other people could do that, and to try to 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 try to develop a thing. Um, I think what Biden just did in legalizing marijuana in federal was a good step, um, and I think there's a number of small steps that could be done. Uh, but there is a prison industry. There's a bunch of people making a profit off of what's going on in prisons, and it's 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 literally horrible what's going on in the prisons. And it doesn't make the world safer. What it does is young people are so brutalized and they have to become so tough in order to survive that when they get out, they are not the thing. So I wrote in response to some of the attacks that we had to really look at the models of Sweden and South Africa. Did I talk to you about South Africa's police experience? Not in some, not yet. No, go ahead. Okay. Well, let me just say as a couple of things that when they go into negotiations, the South African police union that Khalid had sent people over to train, by the way, because CWA used to send a ton of money every year to the African National Congress. So when they took power, they asked CWA, can you send over some law enforcement officers that would train us in negotiating and building multiracial police unions? So they did. Um, I should say we did, yes. And one of the things, um, uh, one of their leaders came to the United States and she talked about uh, and asked the whole group of American law enforcement officers, are you patriotic and do you work for your members? And they all said yes. And then she went on to say how they negotiated for better food for the prisoners and better uh, job skills for the prisoners. And people said, oh, no, we don't like that. And they said, well, you know, when you go into negotiations for better food and job training for prisoners, your members don't get knives on your back stuck into you. And you get people coming out of prison who are able to make a living legally. Right. And uh, so we had a convention. So this seems like a much more progressive form of police union uh, than uh you know, than, than the model even that many in the Western world would be familiar with. Right. And Cleet, which in the police world is considered one of the most uh, radical police unions, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. got uh, three people to go over and do training there in South Africa. And then they they did training in Botswana land and Lesotho yeah. and uh, Swaziland. And it's so, interesting to yeah, kind of go ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. 
No, I was going to say, you know, I, I wanted, I, I was just thinking about your earlier comment that, you know, like even in some of these very progressive countries like Sweden and Finland, you know, we, we have, we still have a law enforcement and an imprisonment system and just sort of, oh, makes one think about the re, the likely realities given, given the vicissitudes of human nature, you know, even in utopia, you're still going to have murderers. You're still going to have right. people like Anders Breivik. You know, you're you're still going to have uh, political uh, terrorism. You know, it's it's not going to be exactly, uh, uh, you know, kumbaya, bed of roses kind of situation. So uh, it's it's always interesting to me to see people kind of dance on the head of a pin when you when you bring this up. They're like, well, yeah, we'll we'll have something, but but we you know they won't be called prisons. And you're like, well all right but you know you know if it if it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck it's a duck right you know you're going to have some kind of imprisonment system you're going now, to have some kind and, of police and system we could make so what does police abolition for- mean what does prison abolition really mean right. why are you using these terms why not because be honest I'll, about it i'll tell it? you i'll tell you why yeah is because you have some extreme left-wing groups constantly trying to gain status within dsa by raising the most extreme rhetoric and repeating it and making it as soon as there's a consensus around that they they add another extra extremist part to it and it's total bullshit it's opportunism based on wanting to build your own little sect within dsa yeah and you they can't justify it by an intellectual regular discussion or if they talk to me, they'd say, oh, you're just right wing. Well, you know, you could put that label on me. Uh, I don't know what that gets you, but um, if you look at my background, uh, whether it was joining SNCC when I was 14 and fighting in civil rights movement, and then uh, being involved in stuff every single year. It wasn't like I just drifted in and out of activism. I was doing activism all the time. Right, right. From the time I was 14 or 58 years, okay, that I've been an activist. And I would put my history up against any one of these guys. Yeah, yeah, rightly so, rightly so. Danny, I don't want to keep you all day. Uh, I I have one last question for you, though, if you have time and... You know, yeah, no, it, I, I, I like answering yeah. these questions. So go, go <laughs> ahead. Don't... I've enjoyed I've enjoyed our <laughs> chat. Um but I know uh you know obviously we, we don't have to talk about anything you're not comfortable with, but uh you know, I know you've had some health troubles recently and, and I wanted to give you the opportunity if you feel up for it, um to sort of look back now on your experience on the American left and how you feel about it and what you feel about the challenges facing the left today and where we go from here, um, you know, to, to sort of, to sort of make, to, to, to give you the kind of cliched version of this question, you know, what, what right. advice would you have for young organizers today based on your life experience, shall we say? Okay, well, one is that my health, I have cancer that is uh, literally throughout my whole body right now. I'm sorry, And so I won't have a a long time to live. Uh, And I think the left, there are people 
who can spend a lot of time reading left-wing diatropes yeah. on the internet yeah. or in my day books and I have a ton of them from every different variation but I think that the problem is that the successful people in the left always linked um, the theories with the activism and the practice so uh, Marx linked what he was writing with the actual um, Paris Commune. Most of the other left-wing leaders that were somewhat um, successful constantly had a linkage um, between theory and practice. And I think that the problem with the way the left communicates through theoretical stuff all over the country, sending stuff back, that people are involved in developing theory seven or eight years straight without doing any practice. Oh, I can't go out to a march on women's rights because I'm writing something about how women's rights are being attacked. Well, unless you're out at demonstrations, unless you're out, and it's not perfect block walking for the Democrats, but if you're block walking for the Democrats and talking to people and seeing what the questions that people have on their minds, you're going to get totally off track. And I think that the left people have to constantly judge themselves and they should judge themselves harshly by being involved in the day-to-day fights that people have. So I've been retired from the union for years and I still go to uh, most of the rock meetings, which is the retiree organizing committee. And I go to the general assembly and I go to every demonstration that they call because you have to have your feet linked with the labor movement, which is usually the most rational force, um, sometimes a conservative force in the labor movement, but it is a rational force. And you should, if you, uh, at one point when I was living in uh, Tennessee, there was an old friend of mine who had went to work for the Southern Poverty Law Center. Do you know what that is? Okay, and he went underground in North Carolina working with the, uh, being a member of the Nazis and the Klan. And so I was living in East Tennessee, so he would drive over and just to spend an evening clearing his brain out. Um, he said, these people are very dangerous and whatever. And he had been a former left-wing activist at a union activist and then he volunteered because he was originally from the south uh to do this job for the southern poverty law center he was it was fascinating he would just sit and talk to us about different stuff and he was really a very good human being um 
So he got some pay for this, but he never got any recognition or didn't put it on the internet or anything like that. But what he told me was, no matter whether you flow in and out of different groups, the two things you got to stay close to is the fight for socialism and the the fight for labor within the working class. And if you stay close to both of those things, that uh, you're going to stay whatever. The other undertone he said, which was the thing I said about the practice and theory have to be linked because you can go off into the stratosphere very easily. Um, he said you have to somehow have your feet grounded so that what you're doing is constantly being judged by actual working people. And if there's a bunch of theory which is totally rejected by everybody, you can't just assume you're right and everybody else is wrong. Um, you just can't assume that. Um, now, it is possible there's going to be instances where you're right and most uh, everybody else is wrong. But it gets very tricky if you assume that that's the situation. So I think that the thing that I would leave with people is you have to link theory and practice because otherwise you just float off into the air holding on to a hot air balloon um, yeah yeah you have to connect and with i saw some people. of these these kids who are attacking me yeah they weren't attacking me for bad reasons they thought they were right but they were not grounded at all they just you know and they thought the more nasty and vicious they were and making threats to my wife and and family was a legitimate thing and uh and there was a guy in california who had called my house 29 i think i told you this 29 times uh and just cussed us out and did all sorts of things now if he assumed that i was a police agent didn't he have enough brains to think that the police agent could track that down yeah. Or if he'd done any yeah. history on me, me working for the communication workers, that we couldn't track down a number. Yeah. So I called him up and I said, um, I understand you're calling Danny Fatani. And he said, yes, who are you? I said, well, I'm Danny Fatani. He just hung up. <laughs> but it was sort of like there was no sense that he had... It was sort of like if I was a police agent, um, I could track him down. Yeah, yeah. You know. Yeah, it's naive. It's naive. It, it, was, it was very naive. So a bunch of the people attacking me were kids, and then a bunch of the people tried to use that. So they got upset with me when I said, if you throw me out, you're kicking off a duly elected member of your nonprofit board. And your whole nonprofit status would come into question. He said, well, that's not right that you would do that. I said, I'm not saying I'm going to do that. But do you realize that you don't even understand that DSA is a nonprofit? And you're jeopardizing this? Uh, uh, and I see, finally you know, talked this is, to... This is why... I had, 
Yeah, go ahead. No, I'm just saying that, you know, the rule, you know, the response to to that kind of argument is always like, yeah, the rules don't matter, man. You know, this is this is democracy here. And you're like, well, you know. Well, also, you know what they said to me was you shouldn't do that. You wouldn't do that. <laughs> you wouldn't I said, do that. well, <clears throat> if I'm guilty of all the things you. <laughs> yeah. If I'm this police wrecker. <laughs> yeah. So which am I? Which am I? I'm either this like, you know, the embodiment of Satan here to destroy right. you all, or, you know, I'm this good faith socialist uh, organizer just trying to make a contribution at this stage of my life to to DSA leadership. So, you know, which yeah. is it? <laughs> which is it? Well, they, yeah. could, they couldn't answer that. And they uh, at that point, about halfway into this, I got a lawyer, a DSA lawyer who was a leader from Seattle who supported my election. And he finally said, he says, well, when you're, you want to quit, are you going to file something legally against them? And I said, I don't think so. I think I'm going to quit DSA. I'll start repaying dues after about a year. But um, what would happen is that the people who were the biggest assholes who would reinforce what they think and it would hurt DSA. And I, I just don't want to do that. So I'm just going to resign from DSA and let it go. So he said, well, he respected what I was trying to do. Well, Danny, yeah, this was great. Thank you so much. Okay, you take care. You too, mate. It's so good talking to you. And all the best to Barbara. You too. Bye-bye. Take bye. care, mate. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.